So if we were an ang Anglican congregation, I would respond with, well, this is the word of the Lord, and you would say, thanks be to God. We know it's the word of the Lord, so uh, let's, let's work with that. Okay, so here we are, Colossians, and um, when, when I look at this passage, um, there's so much in it, you could write a, you know, a sermon series out of it, I won't, I won't threaten that, but the, there's so much that could be dealt with, but I want to look at the whole piece, because it has a message as a whole as well, although there are lots of subsections to it. I think it's one of my favourite passages of scripture, but I have to say, amongst many favourites. So um, there's, a, there's a mixture there. I think when I, uh, I read it, I, um, it's not because I, I look at it and I think, well, I can be smug about this. And, uh, but to me, it's just it's so plain, and it lays out for me the road on which we are intended to walk as followers of Jesus Christ. And it also reminds me of how simple it is to wander off the track as well, how easy it is to get lost and start wandering. I approach this text wearing L-plates, back and front, and I read it and reflect on it a few times, and I think those L-plates need to be probably a lot larger once I've done so. Uh, Recognise that. Now, I've entitled this morning's message, actually, I need to do this as well, I think, which way do I point it? Uh, not that way, or that way. A, a bold title. I'm going to come back to this, uh, but I've entitled it A Glimpse of Heaven. Because I know, even from my own limited experience, that when the grace and the love of Christ abound in a church, we do actually glimpse something of heaven. But also, like you, I'm sadly aware that when those, that grace isn't there in the church... Sometimes we glimpse something quite different. When the world creeps into how we run the church, when the world creeps into how we behave to one another, then maybe we glimpse something more of hell than heaven. And that's a sad fact, but we need to recognise it. Church can be a great place to be. It can also be a very hard place to be. I was with someone this week and they said to me, how can it be? people who love one another so deeply can also hurt someone, one another so deeply. I think whether church can be seen as a glimpse of heaven or a glimpse of hell comes down in one sense to a simple point, and that point I would say is whether Jesus is at the centre or whether we found that we put ourselves in different individuals at the centre instead. There's this passage that Paul writes to the Colossian church. He's writing to a church that's torn apart. He's not writing to a church that's having a good old time. It's a church in difficulty, and it's struggling. And, and in this example of Colossians, it's primarily false teaching that's causing the division. But there's many other things underneath that, because when there's false teaching, other things seem to come in. Increasingly unchristlike behaviour takes as it were, predominance. And Paul wants to bring them back on track. You know, he loves his churches. You read that as you read his letters. He loves them. He, he, he's he's you know, directing them and trying to encourage them and trying to correct them. But underneath it all is very clearly this sense of love for them. There's no sense of abandoning. That's the thing I love about that first hymn. 
He's reminding us about how God, by nature, is faithful. You know, he does encourage us and wants to lead us on, but he does correct us as well. And, uh, but he doesn't abandon us. We can be so full of ideas and opinions, it is quite easy to put ourselves at the centre, because that's what we do in a worldly sense, probably every day. To fool ourselves into thinking that you know, the cosmos, the world, rotates around us in some way. But that is a complete lie for us as Christians. And it's a lie from the father of lies, because the world does not revolve around any one of us. Every individual, every faith community, I think, can live in the ever-present danger of this fallacy. Because, although as Christians believers we affirm the presence of God's salvation in our present life, we remain fallible. We remain weak. Individuals who only ever at best can but cast themselves on to the mercy and grace of God. I always like the image of, in the Bible, of people being, people of God being likened to sheep. I always find this quite a slightly amusing one, but I think a very appropriate one. If you think about sheep, they're fairly weak-willed, they're easy to lead off in all sorts of different directions. They wander. Uh, they do quite a lot of bleating. I don't know if you notice that, sheep. I'm, I'm, yeah. The, um, and they're not really in a position to look after themselves. They're very dependent, actually, on the shepherd to look after them. And I just always thank God that Jesus, that God makes himself known in Christ in, one, in this image of a good shepherd in John's Gospel, in one who's willing to give up his life for their sakes. Paul's letters are primarily writings of a Christian man who's trying to come to terms with Jesus, with the teachings of Jesus and the gospel, as it were. He's trying to understand, I think, for himself what that means to live as a Christian and therefore what it means as a community of people of faith to live as a community. And I think regardless of the actual nature of problems in a church, the division or whatever it might be, his answer, if you read his letters, is ultimately always the same. Turn to Jesus. Turn back to Jesus. Face your Lord, your Saviour. Look to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Hebrews 12, verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. So Jesus doesn't just save us, but he also continues to perfect us. He's the author of our faith, but he's also the perfecter of our faith. And I don't know, looking at myself, I know there is much for him to do in me. So I wondered where our eyes, the eyes of our minds, as it were, were focused as we came to church this morning. Maybe we were focusing on the past and what's happened in a recent past here. Are we looking forward to how Jesus is going to lead us into the future? There comes a time where there's no longer any real value in dwelling on what is past, but we will need to turn our attention to what lies before us, because God hasn't abandoned us. It's been difficult, been very difficult for a whole number of you in different ways, but God hasn't walked out the door. God waits now for his people to turn to him and say, Lord, where now? Where are we going now? Let the journey continue. It's useful to look back and learn from the past, and that's what we're doing in part with ACORN. 
we're trying to make sure there are, there are lessons out there to learn. We do pick them up. We don't just cast them aside. But we're not going to just dwell on the past. You know, we will. We are people of hope as the Christian. And therefore, we will look to the future with hope once more. Now, looking at our passage, I'm going to um, click that way and click that way. <laughs> oh, it's up there. It's down there. <laughs> uh, unless the battery. Oh, you've done it. Oh, I've gone too far now. Lovely. Lovely. Okay, thank you very much. Let me read those first few verses to you again. This is the four verses of uh, Colossians uh, 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Paul starts this passage with a statement of truth, with something that is like a rock, a foundation, that all who have put their trust in Jesus as the Christ and who have publicly affirmed that faith in baptism have been raised with Christ. He doesn't say will be. He doesn't say maybe. He says you have been raised with Christ. And that is so important, that foundation. Everything Paul is going to say subsequently in this passage hinges on that truth received by faith. That's the rock on which we stand. We will constantly struggle to live a Christian life if we base it on the foundation of ourselves, our efforts, our successes, or our failures, even on the accuracy and belief in our rules or our theology. The foundation, the rock on which we stand, is only ever God in Christ. It's a foundation established on the agape love of God, the divine God, for our sakes. God's gracious act of salvation that we receive by faith and respond to then with heartfelt thanksgiving and willing service. Paul in Romans 8, verse 1, he writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's another wonderful example, I think, of the present tense being used for what God has done for us in Christ. We're not worthy of it. not saying we are. But this is what God has done for us in Christ, which we've received by faith. Yeah, okay, we're not worthy, but that's the rock on which we stand. There's no point trying to follow the Spirit into the future if somehow we've lost touch with that foundation, the foundation of God in Christ for us on which we have been invited to stand. Only having read it, as it were, and, if, and embodied that truth, taken that truth into ourselves that from those first four verses, can we actually start to hear what is actually being said in the verses that follow. So I'm going to move on to those verses that follow. And between verses 5 and, and 10, 
Put to death, therefore, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil, desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Do not lie to one another, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. We remain in this life weak and frail. And that's why worldly behaviours can soon creep back into church life. They naturally will creep back into church life. But Paul is saying they are incompatible now with your present position before God in Christ. Like oil and water, they can't coexist. And Peter, in his, one of his letters, he said, just as ye, he who calls you is holy, so be holy in all you do. Because this is God, and we are his children. That list in those verses 5 to 8, by the way, is not intended as an exhaustive list. But as Paul says, it is because of such things that the wrath of God is coming. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, which is more than sexual as well, evil longings, greed, anger, rage, malice, slander, swearing, cursing, lying, the list goes on. James gets it really nicely in chapter 3 and verse 10. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, he says, this should not be. I, when I read these lists, I read, I see God expressing this incompatibility, but also God expressing his love, his tough love. It's because of that love that he saved us at the terrible cost of his beloved son. It is because of that love and in the security of that salvation which we have now that he longs to change us and lead us on in life. Brothers and sisters, it's because of God's love that such verses are written in his word. Jesus said in Mark's Gospel, he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then verse 11. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian or Slovian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, sorry, Christ is all and in all. Sort of echoes there, I think, um, Corinthians 12, 13. For we were all baptised into one spirit, into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all given one spirit to drink. And I find it beautiful that there's that scripture, that sentence, actually, in, in the, this passage, is a wonderful mandate for the need for equality in the church. Equality not based on the fact we're all the same, but the fact we're all sinners who have found themselves embraced by the grace of God expressed in Christ. Every one of us. Whether male or female, old or young, black or white, whatever colour, race or background, the basis of our unity is not founded on who we are, but on who we are in Christ. 
And in Christ, if one part of a body hurts, the whole body feels the pain. So it's right, actually, where you had a situation where the church has felt divided, that that pain, in some sense, is shared because we are part of one body. You know, why does it hurt so much when, when someone you love in Christ hurts you? Well, because they're part of you, in a way, in this sense. We all have different gifts, and we use these to serve the God, the God's people. We don't use them to manipulate or control the wider body. I always feel when the church starts coming divided, it has started to lose sight of the fact that we are all needy sinners before Christ. This meal we'll share later reminds us of that very fact. Stuart Townsend, in one of his songs, In Christ Alone, My Hope Is Found. He is my light, my strength, my song. He is the cornerstone. He is the solid ground. So we approach one another in faith, recognising what we hold in common, and yet also recognising how we're all wonderfully so different as well. Ephesians 4 and verse 3 make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Lose sight of this, and each of us... um, uh, are in danger of wandering our own separate way. We have a sense of unity in the church, but then he goes on, Paul goes on, and we have these verses here. And this is really a result of what he's now saying. He's talked about the foundation we we, we are and how incompatible this is with other behaviours. He's talked about the unity we share in Christ. And he's then saying, therefore, because of that, hear these words, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, clothe yourself with kindness, clothe yourself with humility, clothe yourself with gentleness, clothe yourself with patience. Bear with one another and forgive. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all of these virtues put on love, Paul says, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's a wonderful few verses, but it's coming after all the rest of it. Because who we are in Christ, because we are amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, then put on Christ. All wonderful examples of Christ-like behaviour. Again, not meant to be an exhaustive list, but certainly a pretty good start, I'd say. Bear with one another. Forgive grievances you have against one another. And to me, the very heart of this is that sentence that says, forgive as the Lord forgave you. I think this is a lovely picture. Children, arms around each other. Does God see that when he looks at us? 
We are children before God. Does he see this sort of embrace? And not just the motion, but the sincerity, the inner sincerity of the act. Just, I think it's a beautiful picture, and I'm not putting it out there to, to be sound judgmental, but this is, it, it gives us an image of what God wishes to see in his people. And it's a good image, because with children, it's one we relate to very naturally. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. I think when we are reminded of what Christ has done for us, it demands our full attention. I think even as Christians, for many, many years sometimes, we can lose sight of the breadth and the depth and the height of God's love and grace towards us. And when we do so, we can often easily fall back into a mode of judging others, criticising others, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, but it comes out in the way we behave. Um, the danger we're doing that is we're trying to set ourselves up against our brothers and sisters, and we have no right to do so. We maybe feel a little bit more righteous, a bit more spiritual, maybe a bit more humble. Would we dare to stand in front of Christ, our Lord, and make such a claim? It's the extent of God's love demonstrated in Jesus that leads us to forgiveness. It's a love that has been wronged, for we've wronged God, and yet he still loves us. And it is love that provides the way out, not because it has to, because that because it chooses grace over judgment. Offering forgiveness is not a simple matter. We need to take care, especially at this time as we work with ACORN, we need to take care not to think we can deal with it lightly and brush it under the carpet. Because if we do that, I assure you, in a few months or certainly a year or so, it will be popping up again. Forgiveness is costly. Think of Jesus on the cross. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiveness requires courage. Forgiveness means that we make ourselves vulnerable to another because that other may hurt us again. But this is all the forgiveness we see in, through God in Christ. This is how we have been dealt with. 1 Corinthians 13, I'm sure you're very familiar with this passage, but I often go back to this to remind myself of, what, of God's love. Love is patient. Love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't delight in evil, it rejoices with the truth, but it always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. This is the wonderful cloak of Christ that we are invited to put on, as it were, these virtues. And love binds them together in unity. So what can we say to this? Well, not a lot, actually. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. 
Let the words of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom as you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. When we see more clearly what God has done for us in Christ, in one sense it silences us. We have an example of Job, don't we? And when God finally answers him and he recognises who he is before God, all he can say, this is Job 42 and verse 5, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. When we see once more what God has done for us in Christ and continues to do, continues to do for us in Christ, it leaves us, thankfully, in a similar place. A place of repentance, a place of gratitude, of thankfulness that overflows into worship. For once more, God's word has been heard. So Paul closes this section, finally, with the sound advice. He says, so therefore, after all this, he's gone through, whatever you do, whether it is in word, whether it is in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And I hope we all can say amen to that. So coming back finally, my glimpse of heaven. You might have found that a slightly fanciful title, but I would say no. It might sometimes seem a little rare, and I would say, yep, that may be true. Um, but I think it's a much better option than the alternative. And this word tries to guide us to the right choice. And it is certainly my hope and prayer for this church as the church continues to explore how it is going to be as it goes forward into the, the coming year and the coming years, that that glimpse of heaven may be there for all to see. Not just for us between ourselves, but for those who visit this building, those who meet us, May they also glimpse heaven in us. For Jesus' sake. Amen.